This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by Harrison Scott Key. Harrison Scott Key is the author of the memoirs, Congratulations, Who Are You Again? and The World's Largest Man. His newest book is called How to Stay Married, and it's the story of his marriage during a time of crisis. It's a book about faith and a book about pain. It's deeply funny and deeply tragic. I asked him to read one of my favorite passages before we dug into the conversation, a moment where, in the midst of this time of crisis, he visits a men's prayer breakfast. The praying shall commence, brothers, if everyone could take a knee. Kneeling, an illicit flirtation of body with spirit, is supposed to be an affront to good Presbyterians who typically prefer a safety-first worship environment, hands to yourself, no sudden movements. I'd never seen any proclivity to popish kneeling at this church, so it was quite astonishing to see all these dreary men descend to the floor. Before I could even disappear the last plug of sausage from its fatty puddle, the place looked like a classroom in an earthquake drill, chairs in disarray, everybody hiding under tables. I pushed back my chair as Hugh, hiding on the floor behind the lectern, invited us to take various prayer assignations. Roger would pray for this, Eddie for that, etc. Voices called out from under the furniture as though trapped under rubble. I sank to the floor to this unpadded carpet and wished I'd worn sweatpants. I had just eaten enough delicious breakfast meat to fill a schooner, and now my khakis conformed to my gut with the devotion of a Danskin leotard. I bowed down to God the Maker in my tight pants, eyes closed, and remembered my seasonal vertigo, which causes me to fall over unless my body is lashed to a post. To right myself, I grabbed the chair, setting my elbows down on its cushion, hooking my hands into the curlicue struts of its back, a perfectly comfortable position. It looked as though I were now making love to the furniture. I'd been to Episcopalian churches where they knelt so much it'd make a man keep Dramamine handy. Looking around, I saw two or three older men, incapable of kneeling, who'd thrown themselves prostrate over their plates. I thought some of them might be sleeping. I thought one or two might be dead. Being dead would have been an improvement. All right, Harrison Skaki, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you for having me on. So I, I always like I always like to hear authors frame up their own projects in their own words. So imagine you're standing in a line, you know, waiting for a coffee order to come in. Somebody ch- starts chatting you up and says, "Okay, what, so what's your book about? How to stay married? What what's your book about?" <laughs> to the extent um, that the title doesn't tell us everything. Sure. The best, shortest way to describe it is it's a little bit like A Pilgrim's Progress, but written by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> that's that's a good short way. That's good. Yeah, as a deep Larry David fan, I, I appreciate that. We're going to talk about the book quite a bit and get into some of the weeds here. So I think people who are fans of yours that want to sort of avoid all spoilers probably should read the book and come back. And yet, 
with the title being How to Stay Married, I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone to say this is a book about the struggle of a marriage. It opens with your wife coming to you to talk about wanting to end your marriage. And the book's, like all of your work, it's really funny. It's very vulnerable. But this was deeply painful book to read in a lot of ways. It was interesting to me as well, like your work often doesn't paint you in a positive light. Like you're you're, sure. you're self-deprecating in a lot of ways in a lot of your books. And this one, you're very self-deprecating as well. Talk to me about navigating this thread of writing a book about something that's incredibly painful and wanting to write something that's entertaining and comical. And also one of the things I thought was striking about the book is you avoid creating a sense of victimhood as well. So there's some threads there I thought were fascinating for you to navigate. And so I'm curious as a starting place, how much was that intentional? How much was that just the way of unearthing the writing was? All of those are great questions and questions that you have to struggle with when you're writing any story. So the first question or the first sort of way I'll answer that is anything that I write is going to be funny. I don't mean that like I'm awesome and so funny and so talented, but that's just the way that I see the world. I've written a lot about comedy and I have a PhD in playwriting and I wrote a dissertation about comedy and and I used Augustine's concepts of nature and grace and Pauline theology and Augustine theology to talk about what comedy really is because I used to struggle with comedy growing up in the church that you know laughs were somehow bad hmm. or if you were laughing that you you must be mocking somebody or hurting somebody else but I knew that there was something holy and beautiful and true about laughter. What I love about laughter is if people laugh, then something true has been said. Mm-hmm. And so for me, laughter has just always been my truth detector. It's just the way that I see the world. And laughter points out incongruities. Something is supposed to be one way, and in fact, it's another way. And maybe nobody talks about it. And so people laugh because when you talk about that thing that's supposed to be this way, but actually is this way, when you do that and people laugh, they're acknowledging you're like, yeah, you're right. We, we, we all lie about that thing. So no matter what I wrote, you know, I've delivered, I don't know, three or four eulogies in my life. They're all funny. And obviously they're, they're not silly. They're not going to be completely ridiculous, but I love laughter and I love comedy. So whether I'm writing about my father or writing about the South, as I did in my first book, or writing about careers and the American dream, as I did in my second book, or writing about infidelity and God and church and faith, it's going to be funny. I can't help that. That's just my voice. So in one sense, it's just my nature to write funny about anything that happens to me. And the challenge with this book was, wow, this is really heavy stuff. How can I do this in the way that won't seem flippant to people, that won't seem to degrade or devalue what we were going through? So that's one answer. You also asked about victimhood and how do I write in a way as to not be a victim? It's really easy to do that. I mean, when your wife has an affair, most of my life, I walk around sort of not sure where I stand with people, not sure if I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing or the wise thing, if I need to shut up or speak, how I need to act in any particular moment. So the move that I make in my writing and anyone out there who's interested in writing about themselves, you generally want to make yourself the bad guy in anything Mm -hmm. you write because you have an implicit power as the author. 
you are speaking, you have the floor, you control the words and the sentences and the angles and the view, like you control the viewfinder. And so because of you have that power, you have a responsibility to show that you are not using it for selfish ends. Mm -hmm. And so you throw yourself up as the chief of all sinners, so to speak, in anything you write. You know, sometimes what that means is I'm usually the idiot in most scenes that I'm writing. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit like George Costanza in Seinfeld. I'm never quite sure who I'm supposed to be in any particular scene. So being an idiot, being a fool is a kind of sin in a way that because that means you, you lack knowledge. But that was really hard with this book because when, when your wife has an affair with the neighbor, even though most of my days seem gray and the black and the white are not quite clear, it's very clear when your wife has an affair, like, wow, that is a bad thing. So how can I write, how can I tell this story without making her the villain? Because man, she looks like the villain. And anybody you tell the story to, you know, when, when this first happened and I would talk to my friends about it, she was the bad person and I was the victim and poor Harrison, what can we do to help you, brother? And what I realized I needed to do was to show people I needed to go back into the past. So the second or third chapter, I back up and I tell you who we were when we got married. And I show you how tender and loving our marriage was. I show you all of the ways that I hurt my wife. Hmm. Not terrible ways, but in little digs. You know, we're both funny people. We both make fun of each other. And there's a whole chapter. I think it's called Love is a Joke. Hmm. And it's about how humor is what made us fall in love, but it also is what we use to hurt one another. So if I show you all those things, I can show you my wife as a three-dimensional character. And I can show you how I screwed the marriage up. That, you know, in the sense, this book is a murder mystery and in every murder mystery, somebody dies in the first chapter and what died here is our marriage. And so the whole book is really an investigation of who killed this thing. And it looks like she did. That's the red herring. She's mm -hmm. the bad guy. She and this other guy that she had the affair with. And that's the red herring of the book. And I go in this investigation and I talk to God. I talk to my friends. I go back and read the Bible from start to finish, the King James. I'm looking for answers. Who killed this marriage? Is it really dead? Can it come back to life? And if so, how do we do that? So it's that once I realized that this wasn't really about, I mean, this book, of course, it, it's about an affair. When you read the book jacket, it talks about the affair. But saying this book is about my wife's affair is sort of like saying, the movie Jaws is about marine biology. It's not right. quite that. That's just the plot device that compels all of the biggest questions of who are we? What is love? What is a marriage? I mean, marriage is just a crucible in which you really learn what truth and love and forgiveness are. Right. And so it's really a book about faith in, in a yeah. way. In those early chapters, part of the picture that you paint is the sort of comedic cynicism you both had about you know, mm -hmm. people who post on social media, you know, about their, their spouses being their best friends. And there's kind of an arc to that where you recognize that there's a longing underneath the mm -hmm. laughter, right? There's like, there's mm -hmm. something, there's a sadness to the joke. It, I'm, Groucho Marx has this line where he says, all laughter is rooted in despair. Yeah, And I kept thinking about that over and over reading the book because it is the comedy of kind of the holy fool who's stumbling through life and doesn't realize that he's revealing truth. I wonder, as you thought about including some of those, particularly some of those early stories, intentionally or unintentionally, the degree to which you're kind of commenting on 
cynicism as a device of the age. The way we communicate Mm -hmm. in general is just deeply cynical. And has that changed for you? I mean, do you find yourself less sympathetic to the sort of cynical laughing at my wife's my best friend, the comedy of the way we display ourselves? I don't believe all laughter is rooted in cynicism. You know, what does G.K. Chesterton say? He has this quote that I use as an epigraph for the book. Angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. Hmm. And I do believe that at its best, laughter is an acknowledgement of brokenness. Things are not right. And look, and we're, nobody's talking about this particular thing. You know, I talk a lot about in the book how you hear so many platitudes in marriage sermons and wedding ceremonies, but nobody talks about how hard it's actually going to be because right. you really, you can't, you can't take it. I mean, it's a heavy truth to take, especially on, on a wedding day. So for me, all comedy is rooted in hope that, mm-hmm. all right, we have to acknowledge that these things are broken before we can find a better way, either before we can fix them or God can fix them or someone or circumstances can fix them. And so I do think that my wife and I still laugh at weirdo married couples who, you know, go to Disney without their children. I still think that's <laughs> really strange. Um, but, but, as long as I acknowledge I'm laughing, not just because that's weird and it is weird, but also because I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And it is a little strange. And I used to laugh because I thought I was better or smarter than those people, just to use that example, or people who talk, like you said, who talk on Facebook about how they married their best friend. I married, I'm so lucky that I married my best friend. And I'm like, I don't know. That seems insane to me. Like I have, I actually have best friends and it just seems to, it's, it's this weird humble brag. Like I married my best friend. I don't know who you married, but I married my best friend. (laughs) We do like, we get along so well. And I'm thinking, would your spouse also say that? It almost like, it's like the spouse has a gun to the back of their head, like smiling in the, in the photo. Yes, I did marry my best friend. So now I realize that my laughter, the joke I'm making is not just, it's not like, oh, I'm superior to these people because I'm not a weirdo, but they have something that I want. I don't know if they're lying. Some of them might be, but what they are describing is a beautiful thing that is not true for most people. That's where the laughter is. And so you're not just laughing at them. You're really laughing at yourself. And that's what I learned. So my wife and I are still very funny people and we still pick on each other so much. People ask like, do you pick on your wife as much as you used to? And does she pick on you? And what I tell them is like, you know, we used to laugh at each other and now we laugh with each other while making fun of other people. Um, that's what, (laughs) so we're, uh, mostly our children. We, we take ourselves less seriously now, and that yeah. actually allows more laughter. Yeah. So when we did our book launch a couple of weeks ago, Lauren, my wife, and I both spoke at that. And that was pretty heavy, as you can imagine, 250 people there in this community, including people from many churches that I talk about in this book in an unfavorable <laughs> way. They're there, and I'm thinking, have, I guess they haven't read the book yet, but they will, and maybe they won't be friends with me after that. Uh, maybe some of them will agree. A lot of people have reached out to me secretly, and they're like, my, you know, uh, everybody in my church hates this book, but actually they all love this book, and they can't stop reading it, but they right. won't admit that to each other. So yeah, my wife and I both pick on each other a lot more, but it's in, it's so much in love and we're not as defensive. Our guard is not as up as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And so at the book launch, my wife was like, 
somebody asked her in the Q&A, like, you know, why did you marry your husband? And she's like, uh, she said, obviously not for his looks. <laughs> and, and then she just went into this awesome monologue about how weird I looked. And everybody was dying laughing. But they're laughing because they're acknowledging like, wow, I just wrote a book that exposed my wife, like incredibly to the entire mm-hmm. world. And here she is exposing me. And there was some justice in that. And that's why they were laughing. So yeah, we still laugh a lot, but it, there's not as much cynicism in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have two choices. Life is heavy. It is so heavy. And you can be bitter or you can laugh about it. That's it. Those are your Mm -hmm. options. You can choose to look at life as a tragedy. And I talk about in the book, I have been in churches where the pastors have said, you know, the Christian life is a tragic life. And I could not disagree with that more. Now, I get what they're saying. Like, the Christian life is full of disappointment and death and sin. But life, to me, is a comedy. Every great comedy ends in a marriage. The Bible ends in a marriage. Comedy is about acknowledging, and I wrote about this in my dissertation, at the end of the day, so I'll give you a little 30-second sort of my theory about comedy here and how it relates to the Christian life, which is... I used to look at comedy and I would see so many despicable characters like, again, George Costanza, Michael Scott, Dwight Schrute. These are, they're idiots, they're fools, they're liars. They're always lying. Our comic heroes are always lying. And I used to think, okay, as a Christian educated in Christian worldview and Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis and Calvinism, like how do I write a heroic, noble comic character? And then I realized I couldn't, they don't exist. And that what makes the tragic hero who is very noble and upright and the comic hero so different is that the comic hero at some point is exposed and recognized as a liar. And Mm -hmm. in his humility, in his humbling, that's when the truth comes out and that's when love and salvation occur. That's why we love George Costanza and Michael Scott anyway, because we finally find out that they are fakes and they learn that they're fakes. And that's the story of every believer who walks the planet. We all learn that we are liars. We are lying to ourselves. And once that's exposed, you can find salvation. Yeah, I mean, coming back to you talking about your wife, I can't imagine being in the room for the launch of the book and, you know, knowing people have read the book and, and what you, the way you the way we speak about it. I, it struck me as like, I said this before we got going, I, I was a pastor for 15 years and dealt with a lot of marriage questions and talked to a lot of married people as they were struggling through things and or prepping for marriage and that sort of thing. And like one of the rules, you know, one of the rules of marriage is you never badmouth your wife in public, right? You never badmouth <laughs> your wife in public. Oops. <laughs> and and uh, I think it's safe to say that the way you talk about her, not just like the way it affected you and how you felt, but your feelings about her in that moment, the ways you thought about her, the sense of anger, you know, sort of sense of righteous anger and rage at her and quote unquote Chad, the Chad passages, your description of Chad's in general. <laughs> that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the book is the oh, descriptions Chad. of Chad's. Talk to me about that. Like, how did you navigate and probably with her to some extent? the way you were going to talk about the emotions of betrayal, the sense of emotional betrayal. I mean, I guess in a sense, kind of what you're asking is how did you get away with writing this book? Like what did your wife think about all this? That's what a lot of people want to know. The short answer is after we reconciled, I was writing about this as it was happening, kind of like Mm -hmm. battlefield reports. 
in a way, like if you read the Psalms, like you can tell whatever's going on with the psalmist, like there's some heavy stuff going on. Right. And he's writing about these Psalms, these songs, these prayers are happening kind of in the moment. Like something has just happened to this guy and he is desperate for help. Right. And that's sort of how I wrote the book. I was writing it as this was happening. And so when my wife came home about three months later, after we had sort of gotten through the most touch and go moments, but it was still, obviously she'd only been back for three months, but I said, you know, I think I've got to write about this. And she sort of expected that because she knows me. She, we've been married for 20 years. She knows I write about everything. And she said, can't you just write about our dog or something like a book about Gary? People would love that. You know, like I really should write a book about Gary. I could sell a million copies, but she just, it was too much for her to handle. And I said, you know what? I said, don't like, let's forget about it. I'm going to keep working on whatever this thing is, but nobody has seen it and it's fine. So like, it doesn't even exist. And so a year later, again, after, you know, going to therapy every week and having many, many long conversations about what happened about a year later, I handed her the manuscript and I said, you know, if you don't love this book, I will burn it and nobody will ever see it. Hmm. And she said, okay. And she took it and she read it in a couple of days and she came back and she said, I think she was shocked at how angry it wasn't. I think she thought it was going to be like a revenge memoir. And she said, it's missing one thing. And I said, you tell me, girl, what's it missing? And she said, I want to write something for it. Mm. And I was hoping she would ask that. And so mm. she went and wrote her chapter. It only took her about a week, which is really frustrating because it takes me really long to write anything <laughs> good. And she wrote this freaking <laughs> amazing chapter. And I, it just, yeah. it was like, it was her story that she had finally expressed. And in some sense, a lot of our, the pain in our marriage happened because not all of it, but a lot of it, because she hadn't ever really articulated her story in that way, in a hopeful way. She'd gone through depression and so many terrible things. So many terrible things happened to my wife, and you'll find out about them when you read the book. So when she gave me that chapter, I knew that was it. And so what we did next, we're like, okay, well, now we got this thing that we both feel like is good. And we both agree, like, you know, when you see a miracle, you want to tell people. And we both felt that way about this book. We experienced a miracle or a series of miracles. And so the next thing we did was I chose a chapter and then she had her chapter and we read those in front of our church and some other friends. Like mm -hmm. we got everybody together on a Wednesday afternoon, one summer, like I guess it was last summer. And we invited everybody from church and we invited lots of our friends who don't go to church and they all came. Most of these people knew the story because these are people who had helped us through it. So they weren't learning anything. Some of them were learning some shocking truths in it. <laughs> and so I read my bit. She read her bit. And this is hard for me to say because this is not how I talk, but it was a very holy moment. Hmm. People were weeping. It was so heavy and wild. And there, was, there were a lot of men who would not make eye contact with me for like a couple of months. They were really shook deep hmm. by the story. So little by little, we, the story was shared with our community, with our family members. There were a lot of bridges to repair mm -hmm. and relationships to repair. And then so by the time the book came out, 
it was a story that we had processed over and over and over, almost like exposure therapy. You know, you're afraid of snakes, so you have to touch the snake and hold the snake. And it was sort of like that over and over again. So by the time the book came out, it was more traumatic for other people to read than for us to share. I'm glad you mentioned your community, your your church, because faith really does sit at the center of this book in, in a lot of ways. There's a passage that I wanted to highlight. You said, my hilarious comedy of a marriage turned out to be the biggest joke of all. That night in the dark, God dragged me through the emptiest valley of the shadow of death, the lowest altitude of my life. I needed to pray, but how do you pray to a God who allowed this joke of a marriage? What do you even say? I crawled out of bed onto the floor. God, I said into the dark, help. Was God listening? Was he a fiction too? If God was just as unreal as my marriage, then what to make of virtues of love and justice and mercy? which emanated from the character and person of God according to the teachings of my religion. What did I believe precisely about God anyway? Whatever future lay ahead for my family I knew would be determined by my answer to that question. In a similar way to the way you talk about your marriage, the way you talk about God, the way you talk about faith in this book is very self-exposing. It's very vulnerable, including, as you said you know, a moment ago or alluded to a moment ago, sort of your negative experiences inside some church communities mm-hmm. as you were processing this. There's an obvious answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway, which is why religion? Like, why was religion the place that you went to? Why was faith the place that you turned to when your marriage fell apart? Well, in a sense, it wasn't so much faith, but it was the need for ultimate answers. And so when you experience something like this, whether it's the tragic loss of a child, addiction, abuse, anything that's like up there, you know, level 10, a tsunami in your life, and you really want to do what's right, you want to know what's happening and make the right moves. What do I do about our home? What do I do about our children? What, how do I treat my wife? Do I burn all of our clothes in the yard? Do I take a baseball <laughs> bat and go, you know, beat this guy up? do I move out? You know, Mm -hmm. do I go on a sex bender and start drinking and using like, I wanted to do all of those things because I didn't know what to do. It was so extreme. So what do you do? Well, you look for wisdom and this is anybody, Christians, non-Christians, no matter what you are, if you, if you're trying to find real answers, not short-term solutions, if you're trying to divine real truth out of this situation and know what to do, you're going to look for ultimate answers and ultimate wisdom. And what that means is ancient wisdom. Like, all right, the human race has been around for a while now, and these ancient books, the Bible, the Tao Te Ching, Aristotle's poetics even, like these old plays, old books, old novels, books of religious wisdom provide answers that are more durable, no matter what you believe. And so for me, the first immediate answer was, okay, I'm a Christian, which purports to provide answers and guidance in a moment like this. So what does that look like? I know what my instincts tell me. I know what the culture tells me to do. The culture said, hey, man, you're good, man. Just like let this girl go and go live your best life. Burn all her clothes in the yard. You'll be fine. You're going to go find a new beautiful you if you just like focus on you. That's what the culture said. And even some of my Christian friends, the bad advice I got was, focus on you now. This is all about you. So go live your best life. Or you should hate this woman now and you should hurt her in every way that you can. And even Christians said that, like cut her off financially, make her feel great shame for what she's doing. Those were the two sort of bad answers. And I'm like, I know there's more. There's so much 
mercy in the Bible. So how do you, what does that look like? So the metaphor I give is I was raised in the church. I've never not gone. I mean, I've, yeah, I've definitely had periods where I wasn't in church, but I was raised in the church and I've, I've been a believer my entire life. And I've heard all of the cliches and the metaphors and I've read the theology. I was even in seminary for a week before I dropped out. Like I've done it all. I've preached sermons. <laughs> I've read more theology than your average person. And I've always been a Presbyterian, or at least in my adult life. And so I had all this knowledge, and I'm like, wait, I've never really had to use this wisdom, ever, because my life has been pretty okay. And so it was like going in, you know, sometimes when you buy an old house, there's like a shed in the backyard, and the shed is full of really old, rusty tools. My grandfather's barn had these old rusty tools that you never knew what they were for. You could tell they used to be really important, but they hadn't been used in many years, you know, cobwebs and rust and all that. And for me, faith was like that. It was like wandering into this barn and going, okay, what does this stuff do? How do I use this stuff to actually not die? I mean, I was on the verge of death spiritually, morally, physically. I feel like, I mean, when you, when you have a, an affair, when there's a betrayal, you really open up the pit of hell. Like you invite the devil to the party. You invite mm. the worst kind of evil. And that's why there are so many, you know, revenge killings when there are, you know, you have affairs like this is real. You are playing with darkness. And so going into this shed in my backyard or, you know, to be literal about it, opening the King James, I wanted the old stuff. I wanted the good right. old stuff. Like, what does this say? And so for me, I was like, okay, what does mercy look like? So I like the first thing I noticed as I was reading, there's a whole chapter in the book about reading the Bible. The first thing I noticed, again, these are stories that I'd heard in Sunday school and Bible bowl, Bible drill, sword drill. I did it all, Bible man. Bible bowl, yeah, man. <laughs> um, I got my Bible bowl trophy still in my office. Um, but I was like, oh, wait, all of the heroes of the Bible are really despicable people. Like they're right. terrible people. And nobody talks about that. Or maybe if they did, I didn't notice it. And I'm like, all right, this makes me feel better because I'm feeling pretty despicable. Like I have ruined my marriage and I'm sure my wife is feeling pretty despicable at what she's done. She was raised in the church too. And so that was a real comfort. Like, oh, wow. So God loves like really terrible people. Like I knew that as a good Calvinist, of course I knew that. Right. But like, oh, I now realize that my wife and I are terrible people and we, have, we are hurting our children right now with our decisions that we have made. And so that gave me a great comfort to that these people could be loved by God and to see how they triumphed and how God pulled them through things. So that's a long-winded answer to a question of me wrestling with what do I really believe about what is do justice, love mercy? Okay, well, mm -hmm. justice is not merciful. They're the opposite. That's a paradox. So what do you do with that? We read that and we're like, oh yeah. Or you go to a wedding and you hear, you know, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's, that's like impossible. Right. Like, how do you do that? Right. How do you keep no record of wrongs? You know, I say that I, I think Jesus is probably the first great comedian in world history because so much of what he says is a joke. We don't read it as a joke because we read right. it in church where nobody really laughs. But he says, you know, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times. He goes, ha, ha, ha. No, no, no. Seventy times, seven times. Right. Seventy times, seventy times, seven times. And because he's acknowledging the ridiculousness of how many times you will have to forgive people you love. And so seeing that comedy in the Bible, I was like, wait, it is hard. So what does it mean? Do justice and love mercy. So to be just would be to, in a sense, punish my wife for the wrong things she had done, but it would also mean that I should be punished for all the wrong things I've done. 
love mercy. Okay, so maybe doing justice means understanding right and wrong, understanding what what those things are, but loving mercy, forgiving when people can't meet that impossible standard, keeping those two things in the mind at once. That idea, I think, kept me alive throughout all this. You know, it brings me back to something we were talking about earlier where you were talking about that some Christians often sort of talk about the life of faith as the life of suffering, and and you were saying the life of faith is the life of comedy. It actually makes me think of the stand-up comedian Mark Maron. He has a a special recently where he was talking about sort of the differences he sees in the way Jews think about their relationship with God than the way Christians do in other religions. And he says, you know, he says oftentimes in other religions you see this very sort of tender, fatherly warmth between people and God. He says, but you go and you read the Old Testament and the way the, the way the way people respond when God shows up, this is this is Marin talking, says, the way people respond is, what? What do you want? You know? <laughs> yes. And it's and it really is. I mean, the word Israel is this idea of of, of a struggle with God, this this sort of collision of of a person, of a holiness and with human beings, like you say, that are despicable, that are fools, that are just constantly fools. And I agree with you. I think we really lose sight of that. We like these sort of flannel graph versions of Bible stories that are very heroic and comforting. And we, we love jo- Joseph's technicolor dream coat and all of that. <laughs> and forget the fact that he was – like his brothers hated him for a reason. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. he's constantly telling them these stories about, man, the day's coming when you guys are all going to bow down to me. It's like, of course they wanted to throw him in a pit. <laughs> you kidding, know? man. And so anyway, it, it brings me back to this, this kind of contrast between the idea of a life of faith being a life of suffering and faith being a life of ultimately of comedy. Cause you kind of, there's a sense in which you don't get the comedy without the tragedy, right? Like, like Mel Brooks definition, right? The tragedy is when I cut my finger and comedy is when you fall down an open manhole, right? And die. And die. (laughs) That's right. And the two really do live in that contrast. And I think what I appreciated about your book the most, I'm tempted to give it to every newly engaged couple that I know from here on forward is that the importance of that contrast of like, just so you know, this is how much marriage can hurt you, right? Yeah. This is how painful it can get. And in the same way, like if you talk about the reading the Old Testament, this is how painful faith can be. This is how painful life can be. It is gutting. It is a life where you will witness betrayal. You will experience pain. I guess as I'm thinking about it, like, the contrast is often one between sort of the quote-unquote victorious Christian life and a life that, yes, is a life of suffering, but it all sort of comes back to, I guess, what what do you expect? Do you expect the life of faith that's going to be like, okay, I'm a Christian now, I've married a good Christian girl, and everything's going to go easy from here? Or do we count on the fact that like we're saved by grace and we're we need to live by grace because folly and failure is going to chase us for pretty much the rest of our lives? Yeah, we've just conflated in the American church, you know, just the sort of beautiful American capitalist dream of everything getting better and better every day in every way for everybody. You know, work hard, mow your lawn, do what's right, and uh, everything will always get awesomer. Your property will increase in value, you'll become more beautiful, and your children will have perfect teeth. But anybody who's lived long enough uh, and who hasn't grown bitter will tell you that that's a lie, that anybody attempting to live an honest life is going to be hurt so much. Mm. 
by the people that they love, by people they don't love. They're going to cause so many of their own problems. And, you know, there's such great strength and weakness or maybe strength in meekness. Meekness being the person who doesn't lash out when they can. There is strength in laying open your deepest vulnerabilities, strength in confession, strength in like, we're all so keen on preening and looking awesome, looking our best on social media, at church, at work. We want the coolest, you know, houses and nicest cars and whatever, the coolest sneakers. And that's fine. Like beauty is fine. There's nothing wrong with beauty, nothing wrong with a great lawn or a beautiful home. But you're very mistaken if you think you've earned that by your own awesomeness. And uh, you, you are a tiny little atom in a place in history. There are forces much more powerful than you who are helping you be successful or not successful. And God is the ultimate of those forces. So I, uh, man, you just, there's just so much, there's so much lying there's so much lying in the in the world, and that includes the church, pretending to be okay. Like I'm not saying you have to, you know, walk naked in the streets and talk about how broken you are, but just acknowledging the constant brokenness. I was at I was at a bar last night after a reading, watching a baseball game, and uh, I was I had my book, you know, how to stay married. And so I'm sitting there, and I noticed the guy to my right, who's kind of eyeing the book in a funny way. And then he leans over to another guy at the bar and says something. These guys look like they were in their thirties or forties. And then the guy leaned over and then he goes, Oh, that's a bold book for a man to be reading alone in a bar. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I thought that was funny. And I said, you know, I wrote the book and we had a good laugh about it. And uh, I told him a little bit about it. I said, maybe you should read it. Are you married? And he goes, no, I'm divorced. And then we had a bigger laugh. And then, and then the other guy goes, I am too. And so then I told him where they could get the book. It's just like at a bookstore two blocks away. I was like, maybe you guys need the book. And one of them said, uh, I think it's too late. And the other guy goes, it's never too late. And we had this great moment of just like acknowledging realness. Right. And that's why people laugh when you do that. Like, so you talk, you said tragedy is necessary before comedy. And I a hundred percent agree with that. We are all trying to be the tragic hero who is perfect and flawless and noble. And yet what happens to the tragic hero? What is history telling us? What is our English teacher telling us? The tragic right. hero always dies because right. you cannot be, no matter how perfect you think you are, Fate and fortune will get you. Life will bring you low. That's where the comedy hero starts, low. I am a terrible human being, and that is the only way I can get to the truth is admit that I am not perfect. And so I think we laugh because we are all desperately wanting to be the tragic hero when, in fact, if we're lucky, we get to be comedy heroes. Let me ask one more question before we wrap up. We've talked a lot about the church and we've said some hard things, obviously. And yet there's a church community in the book that really does become critical for you and really does come around you. Talk to me about that. Like, What role did community play? It struck me as funny as something you said earlier. You talked about how at the reading, there were some people who were there who were from this church that you talk about early in the book where you didn't experience a lot of comfort. I'm a little surprised by that. I, I feel like you're pretty generous to that church and particularly to that pastor. There's a story you tell about going to him, a particularly dark moment where he just shows up and prays for you. And I, I felt like that was a really beautiful 
moment in the story. So I don't think you're unfair necessarily to that community, certainly not dismissive of it. And yet there is a community that forms later in the book that becomes really critical. How would you describe like the role those friendships and those relationships in that church played in accompanying you through, you know, saving your marriage, staying married? You know, I've heard a wise person say the opposite of addiction is community. Hmm. And I, I could say that about pain. The opposite of pain is community. Another saying, um, pain shared is halved. You know, pain felt alone is doubled. And so our church community especially helped us sort of on two levels. On one level, it was just having people to tell what happened. Like this happened, having people to pray for us, knowing other people knew our story and that if something happened, we could turn to them. You know, like there's a moment in the book where I needed to move my wife's car to a safe location where this man could not find her because we knew he would be looking. And I have all these people whose phone numbers are in my phone that I can say, hey, can I hide a car at your house so a man with a gun won't find my wife? Hmm. And people who were fearless to say, yes, like bring it to my house. I knew my wife, there was a point in the book where she couldn't be home, but she needed a place to be. And loving people who said, yes, we have a bed for your wife. We will feed her and give her a place to stay for however long without judgment or scandal, without risk of scandal. Like these people were not worried about how they looked to others. Um, So there was that, just knowing that there was this community to help, to pray for us who cared about us. And then on a more practical level, not that that wasn't practical, these were people who brought us food. These were people who brought beer and whiskey and casseroles and fried chicken to my front porch. And they said, here, you are going through hell. I think this chicken will help you. And they would, you know, (laughs) bring me the chicken. They didn't want the scandal. They didn't want, they didn't care about the scandal of being involved with this real mess. It was such a mess. And they did not intrude. They would leave something on my front porch and send me a photo of it and said, I left you some food. I don't care if you don't like it. I think you need it. They didn't say, how can we help? That's like, Mm -hmm. if you want to punish the people you love, ask them how you can help. Because Mm -hmm. all you're doing is giving them one more decision to make. The best friends are the ones who say, I think you need a housekeeper. I'm going to send somebody to your house tomorrow to clean it. What is a good time? for them to come or men who would, you know, I I can remember more than one occasion, uh, I'd be sitting in my driveway, just kind of staring at the sun, wondering where to go next and what to do next. And then somebody would just show up and start mowing my lawn. Hmm. Somebody from my church didn't ask. They just showed up and then they would see me sitting in the, in the, in the front yard or the, on the, in the driveway. And the guy walks over and, um, he goes, I was tired of looking at your ugly lawn. That was just his funny way of saying, I love you. I think I'm trying to help. And he did a terrible job of cutting it, by the way. You can only cut, only only the owner knows how to really cut his own lawn. That's right. That's um, right. I said, I told him, I said, man, I ain't going to stop you. Like learning how to let other people help you. Yeah. Like these other people forced themselves on me, even when I didn't want it. They gave me hugs when I didn't want them. These were people who like had Jedi powers to see that I was suffering. And even when people at our church didn't know, some of them knew, but not everybody, 
they would just come up and they would say, man, you, you look, you look like you need a hug, man. Not in that weird, like contemporary Christian baby Jesus is a kitten and I love you and everybody's cool and hip. No, it was like, dude, something's going on with you and I'm not going to ask, but I'm going to just give you a hug. Like those kinds of people are there. They could see things. They were not trying to help me hide anything. And they helped in a thousand ways. Church used to feel like work. This just feels like a community that also sometimes gets together like once a week to worship and sing and pray and hear the word. But church doesn't feel like the point. Church just feels like the place that we all come together at the same time. But we're in each other's lives every day, every week, helping, feeding pets, bringing food. When my wife left and I was a single parent with three children, these people said, I'm going to come pick up your kids and we're going to go do something fun. Don't ask. They just came and picked up the girls. And I just wept. I wept because they weren't saying, what can we do? Or those poor kids, they did something. And so now, and that has changed me. I'm a very selfish person. It's hard for me to think about other people. I have struggled with that all my life to even imagine what other people are thinking and feeling. And now when I see somebody suffering, I'll come up to them and I'll say, hey man, you know, I love you. Like, are you okay? Is everything cool? Or let me take you to lunch or let me cut your yard for you. There's a family a couple blocks away and we go to church together. And I just happened to find out in a conversation with the dad that they were really struggling and that it just, things were not great at home. So I sent my middle child over there, who's a great babysitter. And I said, you go over there and you get their kids and you walk them back on their bikes all the way to our house and don't ask questions. Just go get the kids and say, my dad said, I'm going to come play with your kids for a while. And then we sent them food. Like, I don't know what was going on with them, but like, we're just loving each other. And something about that love, like opens up places that are closed, places that we close because we want to protect. And so I'm just so grateful to our community and and so grateful to be a part of them. The church is called Christ the King. It's an ARP church, a Presbyterian church, and it uh, it just particularized about a year and a half ago. It's It's a great group. Well, Harrison Scott Key, it's an extraordinary book, and I'm so grateful you made time to join us here on the Bulletin this week. The book is How to Stay Married. And uh, Harrison, where can people find you online? Are you on social media anywhere where people can Yeah, you can just, uh, my, my full name is Harrison Scott Key, and you can just Google my name and find my website. It's harrisonscottkey.com. I'm on Instagram, Harrison Scott Key. I'm on Twitter. I think it's Harrison Key on Twitter, on Facebook. But I love to hear from readers especially with a book like this. I love to hear how people are reacting to it, people at every level of life and age and marriage. I love to hear from readers their favorite lines and their least favorite lines, which they're not afraid to share. I love to hear all that. So please connect with me. All right. Well, thank you again. And thanks to all of you for listening. We are taking off next week. And so there'll be no podcast on the 7th, but we will be back again on July 14th. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you then. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.